Anna Kavora is a researcher in uh, gender studies and she's also uh, specifically around martial arts and combat sports. She's also a, quite a high level competitor in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo. Hello Anna, how are you doing? Hi, hi, I'm fine Paul, thank you for having me. Um, so you are currently in transit, aren't you? you, you you're from Greece, you were working and studying in Finland and then ultimately you're trying to move to the UK during this period of lockdown and travel restrictions and tell us a little bit about the situation. Yeah, well, I just finished my work contract in Finland. I have been living uh, and working here for some years now and I am uh, relocating to the UK. Actually, this has been my first uh, week of uh, working being affiliated with the university of brighton i'm mm -hmm. starting a new project and this is like my first week on that but uh yeah i have been stuck <laughs> between <laughs> between countries i spent the lockdown in greece i came back to finland two days ago to arrange the relocation and uh, i hope that i will make it to the uk by september yeah okay so um so you i mean we've known each other for a while because you've been to almost all of the martial arts studies conferences i think not all but i have been like uh, in the first <laughs> yeah and you you missed you definitely missed the bruce lee one yeah <laughs> yeah i did <laughs> so the obvious question is why why would you miss the bruce lee conference but i won't <laughs> ask you that i won't ask you that it's probably too personal um so you you your research is on issues around uh, fight as identity um, and experiences of power and gender relations and, and inclusivity in different kinds of um, uh, combat sport environment. Tell us a little bit about the, the history of your research. And you were, you were a, like a judo and jujitsu competitor first, I guess, mm -hmm. and then you decided to research issues around that. Would that be correct? Yes, yes. So yeah, it comes from personal experiences, I guess, my interest in gender. And um, actually my background is not in gender studies. My background is in sports science and, um, and in sports psychology in particular is, is my major. And uh, when I got interested into gender issues, like I didn't know anything about gender theory. But uh, my primary supervisor, Tatiana Riba, was brave enough and took me under her wings and uh, introduced me to the theories. I guess she saw the motivation and the passion that I had about exploring these issues because it was about, about uh, my experiences and the questions that I had about why I have been very often the only woman in the class. Like, I mean, when I started martial arts 15 years ago, like it was always like we were just like a couple of women or sometimes I was the only one and I was wondering why mm. why I find so much enjoyment in this and other women are not mm -hmm. and this is how I got interested in the in the topic and then yeah it has been a journey like since then I have been researching gender for 10 years now mm. So I guess the obvious question then is, is what, what were your initial conclusions about why you loved it? I, I guess, was your question like, you just, did you think that if you just gave it a try that more women would like it and what's stopping them from coming through the door? Or was it 
something that why are some people culturally kind of put off by this and other people drawn to it what, what kind of question was it what was your hypothesis and what were your conclusions yeah well in the beginning i thought that i wanted to explore the strategies that uh, let's say successful uh, female judo athletes elite judo athletes uh, the strategies that have they have employed in order to survive and succeed in martial arts but maybe we can learn something from these strategies mm -hmm. that was my idea initially but uh, then it came out that it was a lot about uh, about power dynamics about gender stereotypes gender hierarchies and discourses Mm -hmm. And actually, like, it turned out that uh, the women that have stayed in the martial arts for years and they have a successful competitive career, they were actually not resisting these discourses, but reproducing them. Okay. Okay. So, I, this is how I ended, like, I, I looked also at cultural differences in Finland and in Greece, and they were like, some differences of course like for example like the discourses of femininity uh, are more rigid in in greece what is supposed to be a you know feminine women and uh, while the this discourse is more flexible in uh, finland okay but what was what was the same was this discourse of female biological inferiority i call it in my phd thesis that mm -hmm. um like um by nature by nature, men are better at this, while women are not, you know, made to do martial arts. <laughs> but then uh, these uh, successful, successful athletes, they were kind of like saying that, yeah, normally women cannot do it. Mm -hmm. But I was born different. Like I was uh -huh. always a tomboy. I was born like this and like that. And I was, mm -hmm. but normally women cannot do it. Okay. And it was like a very powerful discourse, like both in Finland and in Greece. Like I was surprised that like almost all, all my participants mentioned this kind of uh, version of, of the discourse. And to be honest, I remember myself when I started judo at, I was 17 years old. And I remember myself feeling like special, that there is something special. I am different from ordinary women because you know they are not here and they are so this is a very powerful discourse yes and, and um, yeah. yeah this this was like my my phd thesis and then after that i started becoming more interested on um, issues of gender and sexuality and actually how we can how we can challenge these discourses how we can resist and uh, challenges Okay, so do you, I mean, it's, it's a common thing, isn't it, to argue that fighters aren't made, they're born, and this kind of, this kind of essentialist argument that you've either got it or you haven't, when in fact all of the evidence points to the fact that you become this thing by trying and by training and by being taught. I mean, some people might be aggressive, some people might be scared or whatever, but I mean, those same things might drive you to, to, a, to a dojo, right? You might be really aggressive and you want to be a fighter, or you might be really scared, or you might mm -hmm. feel really unfit, and then you just get into it, and, and, and at that point, people start to say, oh, they've got the fire, they've got the spark, they've got the essence. But it's not an essence, is it? It's just like an interest exactly. and a passion. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So tell us about your, um, your I guess, your competitive um, um, 
interest? I mean, is that still ongoing? Because there's a couple of things that I've been meaning to ask you about, actually. Um, <laughs> one is, because uh, they've always been intertwined, I know. And one time we were talking um, at an event in Britain and you were complaining because you were, you were badly injured and you couldn't seem to recover enough to train compact properly. And the doctor was telling you that your spine was damaged and you should quit and you couldn't come to terms with that. And then the next time we talk, like a year or two later, you're saying, oh yeah, yeah, I'm gonna go to the, the conference at Chapman University, um, because it's, there's also the World Jiu-Jitsu Championships or something, and I'll go to that as well. So how can you, what happened? You were, you were injured, you were worried about your competitive career, and then you just, what? How did you solve that problem? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the same story with all the athletes. I think it's not like uh, <laughs> it's special in my case. But uh, yeah, I'm now 35 and I can feel <laughs> the effects in my body. I have some problems with my, with my spine and my lower back and my neck also, as you said, and, uh, you know, some other minor injuries. and. Uh, yeah, like I cannot train as much as I, I mean, Marcel, like judo and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu has always been a hobby for me. So mm. I am I am not an elite athlete, it has been a hobby, but at some point it became a serious hobby and I have been competing in, you know, some world championships and, uh, mm. and so on. And uh, yeah, when I was younger, I was able to train twice a day, sometimes three times a day. And, you know, now I am, I cannot really do it, but I am trying to find let's say smarter ways of training. Yeah. Like, like I had to change a little bit my game plan in order to adapt to my low back problems and uh, stuff like that. And, you know, like I try to, as long as I enjoy competing. <laughs> mm. Okay, <laughs> okay. So uh, this thing about training smarter, I mean, are young people just headstrong and stupid or do you think that you have the competitive advantage if you are physically and culturally and financially able to train three times a day? You know, I mean, what, what, what do you yeah. think happens? Is it, is it injury that makes you look for smarter or, or is, it, is it age or like what makes someone go, I can't just train all the time? Um, you know, should people be training smarter anyway? Should younger people be training? four times a week as opposed to 15 times a week? Yeah, well, for me, it was injuries and age because I was this kind of person that, you know, I thought that I don't need any warm-up, like, let's just spar it. <laughs> so I was this kind of person and I wish I was smarter and I, you know, I, yeah, I wish it yeah. was. But uh, I don't know, I think it has a lot to do with the culture of the club also, with how you are taught by your instructors and so on yeah i remember when i when i used to when i started doing tai chi and there's a lot in tai, you know tai chi is incredibly gentle anyway but there's a lot of stuff where you're rolling your neck and i was like come on let's just get through all this rubbish but now yeah. now i'm like i look forward to the world i can spend hours doing this loosely because <laughs> yeah. i'm in constant aches and pains but <laughs> Okay, so um, you're, you're moving to um, Brighton, uh, mm -hmm. and is your research and your post there, is that organized around martial arts, or is it around gender and sport participation, or what, mm -hmm. what is the project? Yeah, it's not uh, focused on martial arts per se, but uh, yeah, martial arts is going to be part of it. I don't know how it happens, since most of my participants in my data usually come from martial arts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but... Um, 
No, the, the project is about uh, trans-inclusive sport contexts. Okay. And it is a ethnographic project. So I'm, yeah. Yeah, as I said before, I like after my PhD, I became interested in um, how we can challenge these gender discourses and this. Mm -hmm. And um, I became interested in the gender bodies and identities because they, they, they challenge our understandings of gender. Okay. And uh, as one of my participants said in an interview, they have been quoting that since then, like it is like being a trans in martial arts is like activism only by existing okay. or in sports. Yeah. So, so I became interested in, in this and in uh, how we can um, organize sport in uh, non-binary ways. Okay. And this is like the, because I mean, like we start understanding now that this kind of uh, practices of gender segregation or the gender categories in sport, like cannot cater for the needs of all the people. So we start now realizing that there are some problems there with the rigid gender categories, but it is hard for all of us to imagine sport organized in a different way. Mm -hmm. So I am interested in, in uh, these uh, spaces that have been doing that. Okay. Because there are these kind of spaces, there are, you know, like uh, queer sports spaces or like I found many red gyms in the UK that they had a feminist and trans-inclusive policy and they were organizing the trainings and even martial arts competition in a non-binary way. Okay. So I became interested in these kind of spaces. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, why is it such an issue? I mean, surely, I mean, martial arts that, so any competitive sports that they're, they're gendered, so like, so there's men's and there's women's, that's, that, that's not necessary because the other categories surely are just to do with weight or height or, you know, why can't it just mm -hmm. be a physical, like some kind of BMI based mm -hmm. category? Like, why do you think people think that organizing things down binary lines is necessary? Mm -hmm. Yeah, why exactly? Why? Yeah, well, there are many feminist uh, scholars that have been wondering exactly the same like, why not height? Why not, you know, something else? Just wait. And uh, they argue that uh, this kind of um, objection with the gender categories is just to protect the binary. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just about that. So, yeah. It's like, you know, the whole debate about, and this is a, seems to be a massive thing everywhere around like, you know, um, transgender people and, and public toilets and public bathrooms. It's like, well, just change it so that you just have toilets. Like you just have bathrooms. Like, mm -hmm. why do you have to have men's and women's? Why don't you? Because not everywhere does. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's like the, the entire organization or like the entire separation of our conceptual um, field seems to be organized around unnecessarily restrictive binaries like it, it, that don't need to be there. They could just be toilets. They could just be weight divisions. They could just be age divisions, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's such a strange thing. Yeah. But I mean, I guess my, uh, the, we're not going to solve this. We can help work things out, maybe, but you know, if we try. But the thing that is is really interesting to me is, um, and I've talked to other people on um, uh, on this podcast as well about 
how do you get, um, I guess, non-cisgender or, 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 or non-normative kind of like people, like identities, how do you get them in the door of a martial arts club? Like, mm -hmm. and, and, um, and how do you make that environment inclusive? Because I know that you've, you've thought about both of these issues. So, so first of all, what kind of suggestions are there? Because it seems like the work has to start out there in culture somewhere, out there in representation, out there in publicity. How mm -hmm. do you make um, martial arts and combat sports attractive mm -hmm. to um, people with disabilities or, or trans people or, or people who feel that they will be um, will experience prejudice or something? How, how do you do that for a start? What kind of suggestions would you make there for, for people who want to have an inclusive dojo or an inclusive club mm -hmm. what do you think just off the top of your head maybe yeah yeah well i don't think that you need to to make an effort to kind of promote martial arts to i don't know another audience i think that people are interested in martial arts or in the sports in general and so on it's just that sometimes they don't feel safe in these spaces mm -hmm. so it's about like making the kind of dojo or your training like uh, your academy safe for all mm -hmm. and maybe kind of like a small sometimes a small hint in your website that you know you are welcome as you are we are you know open for all genders all sexualities all mm -hmm. you know people of mm -hmm. all categories of difference like this can be enough to make mm -hmm. the, the person to feel safe to come mm -hmm. there and then, you know, like problems that usually come out then in the training is like the gender language mm -hmm. or some kind of practices of gender segregation. Like even if the groups in martial arts, for example, the groups are not uh, often segregated, mm -hmm. we train together, but sometimes you end up saying, oh, like women do it this way and men do it this way or women go. So this kind of practices are problematic and make yeah. people feel uncomfortable and um, the of course the locker rooms hmm. is an issue too yeah. see i wonder if it's a lot to do with class as well i mean because you could have some some well-equipped plush gym dojo in a in a nice cosmopolitan area of a city or a town and i think that people would like more people uh of ethnic uh different ethnic groups different mm -hmm. um sexualities different kinds of cultural identities they'll be more prepared to walk into that because it looks safe it'll feel like a cafe or a, you know somewhere that you would just just walk or a department store that feels nice safe but there, there are other clubs that are necessarily more kind of grotty like you know like uh, somewhere in a like a real rough gym like real rough neighborhood and that's probably not it's not going to feel like a safer space to anyone i mean i'm i'm kind of middle class middle-aged white man right mm -hmm. and i am drawn i come from a working class environment and i'm drawn I'm like a class tourist. Like I want my gyms to be rough and ready. I want to go somewhere where people are swearing and, 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 and using foul language because to me, there's a kind of nostalgia there. And I feel fine walking through that door, no matter how rough and tough the people are. But I guess that's going to be incredibly off-putting for, for women or, or, or people of uh, non-white uh, or non-straight identities. I mean, do you think that class and kind of cosmopolitanism factors into this as well 
Yeah, I think there are intersections between class and uh, gender or our perceptions of gender, of course. Like I wouldn't, uh, I don't know, I haven't researched this, but I would be I, hesitant to say that, you know, like uh, upper class white jeans are safer necessarily for like, but uh, yeah, like uh, class and gender are definitely intersected. And uh, I think we lack research on this topic. So this is like an important uh, um, topic to be investigated in the future. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I just, because um, you think about the the status of things like, um, things like yoga, right? You know, like yoga is kind of, uh, which we all know more about now since lockdown, right? Because we've all got... <laughs> What can we do on our own? That's that's maybe a little bit like jujitsu or something, and and we learn more about yoga. That's that's been gendered kind. Well, it's been classed and gendered, hasn't it? It becomes a, a middle class sort of non competitive thing. A lot of the scholarship that I've read about about yoga is that it's was sort of ideally placed for kind of middle class women, and I'm just wondering whether whether maybe certain types of martial art and combat sports practice and location are inherently more inclusive obviously within the dojo this is the next question within the club you could mm -hmm. walk into the most plush and kind of cosmopolitan environment and still encounter these rigid patriarchal or homophobic structures right mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. probably down to the teachers yeah or are there or is it like you suggested it might be in within the design of the place like if there's only one changing area or no changing area mm -hmm. if there's only one toilet or no toilet or, I mean, what do you think about the gendered um, and patriarchal or, or heteronormative structures that you encounter with inside a space? Is that to do with people or to do with the layout of the place or what? Yeah, I mean, the, the culture of the, of the space, that of, of course it has to do a lot with the, with the instructors because they are role models in there on what kind of behavior is accepted or what kind of behavior is not accepted in the in the space but uh, yeah it's the culture of the gym and usually it kind of like has elements from the um, kind of more broader culture of the martial art the culture of the the national culture the um, the, the culture of the um, the origins of the of these martial arts so the, it's a mixture of things i think mm. so you don't think that any particular physical practice is inherently either emancipatory or or, or progressive or regressive or or sexist or you know it, it's all to do with this this complex kind of force field of factors like the the, the hierarchies whether they how they mm. work and and the, the way that people speak to each other and, yeah. and so on, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now I am getting also interested in the intersection with political identities. You mentioned race as one factor, but now I am getting interested with the intersection of political identities with uh, gender and the uh, inclusion of like gender and sexual identities in the training. Like, hmm. because, like, um, yeah, for example, I found the red gyms in the UK to be very you know like loudly inclusive having visible feminist policies and and so okay. on that's another thing okay. that could be investigated like okay so i mean that there's a there's a line of um 
of thinking. If you look at the work of people like Ben Spatz, but you know, it, but there's a long tradition of people who, who have, have really argued that, um, or Martha McCoy, or, or lots of people who argue that gender is is really produced through technologies that 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 um, teach us how to move and how to behave. So, like, um, if so, you know, um, that whole the whole thing about throwing like a girl, you know, because girls. Mm -hmm society doesn't encourage them to and so on it's just like an image of, of yeah. girls aren't taught to throw so they can't throw whereas 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 young boys and young men are taught to put their whole body into a movement yeah. and so is there not something that deconstructs gender binaries just by virtue of so if, if anyone walks into a boxing gym if anyone learns how to do brazilian jiu-jitsu male or female young or old that that is a kind of inherently gender egalitarian thing i mean do you know because i think that there's that that learning self-defense and learning to fight it, it, for my daughters i think it's a sort of a, an important feminist uh, mm -hmm. project i but i totally buy martha mccoy's argument about you know, about physical feminism uh, and that 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 it shouldn't just be boys who are taught to fight or who learn how to fight so is there something inherently um transformative of gender uh that's within say MMA or BJJ or boxing or judo or not, or is it? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And uh, Alex Channon has uh, written about that and many other scholars about the potential of martial arts training just to this emancipatory potential and uh, how like our perceptions of how, what the female body can do and cannot do can be challenged in martial arts training. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, many scholars have written about that, and they, yeah. Um, but I mean, on the other side, it's not, I don't think that, like, just by training martial arts in a mixed group, like, uh, the change is gonna, like, I think we need to reflect a little bit more on issues because there are still, like, uh, certain dynamics that can be created even in a mixed gender martial arts group. Mm. Mm. Uh, there's different, like different ways of talking about yourself and talking about your abilities. But like, I'm thinking about one time we were sitting talking with um, our mutual colleague, um, Catherine Phipps, mm -hmm. who's got masses of combat experience, masses mm -hmm. of com competition experience. And she went, she told the story, she went to a new gym and she she just kept using the expression, yes, I've been in the ring before or something like that. Or yeah, I, I, I have, I've got some experience of this. And they were really, really patronizing to her. Patroni because she, she should have just said, I've been in, like if, if it was a man, there would be no modesty. They'd be like, yes, I fought so-and-so and I won this title and I did this. But she was like, yeah, I have some experience of this. And then when she actually threw a couple of punches and a couple of kicks, they were like, wow. She said, well, yes, as I said, I have some. And then there's the, she, she talked about it in a really self-deprecating, um, you know, modest manner, which maybe mm -hmm. there's something about the way that people speak in a gender Mm -hmm. a gender difference there i don't know what do you think yeah yeah exactly i think that there are like uh, there are lots of things going on and just training just training cannot do the cannot bring the change of course certain things are changing with uh, time and with you know more women are now training martial arts than before and there are changes happening but still like 
we need to reflect more about like like what you mentioned the way that we talk mm. like mm. how we perform our identities and so on how we reproduce we continue to reproduce uh, certain discourses mm. so you think it's it's a it has to be a conscious decision on the part of of people who are who are involved in these environments and these practices like you have to maybe make a conscious decision to be professional to be egalitarian to be progressive to undertake some kind of inclusive um consciousness training maybe unconscious bias type training do, do you think that's that would be a good thing for all teachers and coaches? yeah i think we need education on these uh, topics because many people want to be you know like uh, to to create this to facilitate this inclusive spaces and so on but uh, you know like how to do this it's not included in the martial arts instructor uh, training yeah so yeah. i think we need you know like education for the uh, for instructors and uh, you know all the people involved in sports and uh, martial arts because we don't always recognize what kind of uh, discourses we reproduce or we assist with the uh, things we organize, the way we organize a training or the things we say or the way we perform our identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. So um, what's, what, what are your next, I mean, in terms of, not in terms of your, your employment, but in terms of your research and writing about martial arts specifically, what are, what are the next questions that you'll be looking at? You mentioned political identities. Are you, are you, are you looking at that specifically or what are your plans? Yeah, this is this is in my plans actually. This is in my plans. I, as I said, I mean the project is broader, so it's about uh, like a trans inclusive uh, uh, sport context, and I am going to be collecting ethnographic data from a variety of sports and a variety of like uh, mm. uh, queer sports spaces and so on. But like um, I think one of the spaces that I want to that I want to collect uh, data is like the red martial arts teams in the uk that have a trans inclusive policy okay and to look at this intersection with uh, gender issues trans issues and political identities mm -hmm. okay i think that there's a there's a lot more people who are looking specifically at the the, the connections between uh, martial arts clubs uh, or associations and explicit politics i mean there's there there's been a lot of debates about uh you know various sort of mma clubs and white nationalism and mm -hmm. um, and racism and so on i mean do do you think that maybe martial arts are becoming politicized do you, do you think that they're becoming like explicitly um political subcultures or or, or groups or what do you think the dynamics are there I don't know, like I am, you know, like maybe I can talk more about it in a conference in the future because now I haven't collected the data, so I am just like, it's just in my plan, so, but maybe they always were. Mm. Maybe they always were, martial arts, maybe, mm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think they probably always were. I mean, I just, all, all this, the stuff about, um, there were articles a year or two ago, a couple of years ago, about like uh, MMA and fascist fight clubs, and there was there was a debate about it, and um, uh, as the idea of MMA clubs becoming recruiting grounds for the the alt right and and, and neo fascist clubs, everything. And a thought that really made me chuckle. I mean, it it made me laugh. Was like, so if let's say we agree that MMA is really good for like 
for violence or for, for, for handling yourself. What's better than MMA? Okay, Krav Maga. Wouldn't it be funny? Wouldn't there be a massive irony if like a load of like white supremacists started to Krav Maga? I mean, it, it could happen. Why would it not happen? Why would it not happen? Yeah. Like, you know, Krav Maga, that's so aligned with a kind of um, uh, Israeli Jewish uh, yeah. history. It's got that Jewish uh, narrative. There would be a terrible irony in 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 these uh, these right wing neo Nazis turning to Krav Maga, wouldn't they? But they've done worse in the past. So this is not this is this is just an aside. This is just maybe in a future conference, martial arts conference, we can. Uh... Well, I think that I think that we we should. I mean, I think it needs to be discuss more think, about think... political identities and uh... yeah, yeah, political. I mean, the political dynamics of 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 martial arts. I mean, it's almost like you look, there's a large period of nationalism, wasn't there? I mean, it, through the, throughout the 20th century, martial arts were associated with nationalism and Orientalism and fantasies about the other, but they become privatized now and they become fragmented and, and could, they can be, it's almost like they can be anything. And I, I, one question I have is like, is there something like inherently, say, um, non-violent or le the lesser violent about about something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it seems to it's not about smashing people's faces in mm -hmm. it, it, it's 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 something that it, there's a feminism to it in the sense that if a woman is to be attacked by a man it's highly likely to be a sexual or, or some kind mm -hmm. of like domineering controlling attack and if that if that woman is trained in brazilian jiu-jitsu then she stands an infinitely better chance of, of being able to defeat and control that man and you start thinking there's there's something kind of feminist there's, mm -hmm. it has a feminist potential there right in a way that other arts don't yeah it has been promoted sometimes as uh, like, like that as a you know like a good uh, self-defense method for especially for women yeah so and uh, yeah, I can I can see that it can be like more useful, like uh, in that sense, particularly for women. But to be honest, like this was not the reason that I started. Okay, like, what was the reason? <laughs> was it was it judo first and then jujitsu? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think what what kept me in the sport was like the thrill of the the thrill of the sparring and the thrill of the you know competition excitement and and yeah. so on and like i have been always doing this as a um i have been focused on the sport side of the of judo and brazilian jiu-jitsu not on the self-defense but like of course there was also something that maybe i was like as a child i was feeling a little bit uh, vulnerable and i wanted to become this kind of uh, strong person that can defend myself so there was something a drive like kind of self-defense drive in that sense but i found this sense of empowerment in the sparring and the competition and not mm. you know in uh, learning martial arts like just for self-defense yeah i think that's that, that, that that's a classic sort of sociological argument about sports isn't it it kind of sublimates certain energies and 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 and, and contributes to the building of character and uh, in different ways, I guess. Yeah, I never pursued the the competitive line of anything, um, and maybe I should have, because because then you would just that there's a truth, isn't there? There's a truth and honesty in in sparring. You go, well, these are the these are the parameters, these are the rules. No eye gouging, no biting, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But you you know with certainty 
that you beat someone who was trying to beat you. And the more you do that, there's, there's more of a, of a, of a confirmation that this is not just like, like that you are tough, that you can prevail. Whereas, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of martial arts, there's a, there's, there's a kind of, especially if they just focus on, on self-defense. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because, because yeah. um, a, my, my, my instructor was telling me about a guy who came to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because he wanted to work out. He'd been doing some ultra self-defense stuff. And he said, but it all, it's all over in one second. But I want to lose weight and I want to get fit. It's not just about like stamping on someone's knee and gouging yeah. their eye out. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, like, I don't know, like, uh, I think it differs for different people, I mean, like, different things and so on, but uh, for me, it was, like, uh, inspiring, and in competition, you get this experience of, like, having to try your martial arts skill, I guess, in an unpredictable opponent, Hmm. that also really wants to kind of dominate you or something. So you have this this sort of of experience, while sometimes... Sometimes the, the self-defense classes that I have, you know, participated, like it was more like a choreography. Yeah. Yeah. And at least for me, it was not giving me the same uh, thrill or the same like kind of confidence in myself at the end of the of the day. And um, yeah. yeah, but I, I think it's like uh, different people like different things, and it is what suits you best. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, I mean, I, yeah, that's very true. I just, I wonder if it's, I wonder if we could, we could connect that into questions about um, some of the theoretical propositions about why people turn to certain martial arts. I wonder if, I wonder if there's a way that we could kind of ethnographically um, verify any of that, any of that stuff, or if it's always going to be more complex and more individually subjective than any, any theoretical model could could predict yeah well I, I don't know but i have interviewed like i the focus of my research was not like the reasons why women do martial arts but it was always you know one of my questions and i have interviewed more than more than 40 women i i think mm-hmm. and uh like maybe one of them or two mentioned like self-defense okay so of course i was like also like interviewing athletes so it was my my sample was like consistent Mm. from this type of people but uh, yeah i usually mentioned like things like um you know doing something like like bringing themselves to their to their limits like reaching their limits their potential and um and uh, this uh that you get from competition and yeah yeah I think a lot of the stuff about a lot of the either the theory or the statements that people make or the research questions that they ask about why do you do this Mm -hmm. I think that they miss something really important which is that we're not consciously necessarily in control of of why we do what we do Um, so you know like maybe how many people start to do martial arts simply because their parents took them to martial arts yeah like like, you know if you ask you know like why if you ask my daughter why she does ballet she Mm -hmm. come out she could come out with all sorts the truth is there was a ballet class and Mm -hmm. we took her to it when she was four Mm -hmm. i mean (laughs) that's like and something about it stuck 
Um, so, you know, maybe we're not, you know, it's a, maybe it's a bit like, you know, asking me why I, why I put my glasses on with my left hand. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't know, it's just, that's just, that's just the way it happens, right? I mean, what do you think about that kind of, you, you don't really, do you, you ask, you don't ask fundamental why questions like mm -hmm. motivation. You, I guess you're asking like, what keeps you going? What's the thrill? Yeah. What's the, yeah. yeah. What do you think about that kind of interview method for getting to the fundamentals of, of like an, an actual originary why? Can it do that, do you think? Well, I think that the point is not to get to the true why. I don't think there is such a thing, but you look at the narrative, I think, and the narrative matters. Like I yeah. have been, like in my research, I have been interested in the discourses that people draw when they talk about like martial arts and why they did it. So this is what I was interested. But uh, yeah, like the narrative changes over the years. And I think that if you asked me like 10 years ago, like, like how come I like I would maybe give a different uh, answer that like so the narrative changes. But uh, I think it matters in research, like how yeah. we make these stories and like yeah yeah I, I mean yeah i i agree yeah i my my narratives change i don't know i i don't know if i'm the only person in the world who does this but i'm constantly in dialogue with my 16 year old self because my 16 year old self was such a an obsessive um arrogant dismissive person and i would look at older people and go you don't want to be like that you know so there's still part of me that goes are you, are you are you happy with this? Like I'm still lifting weights. I'm still punching punch bags. I'm still. <laughs> have I let you down? <laughs> it's ridiculous. I know I'm not. Really, I'm not in some kind of conversation with like some some Oedipal father or super ego. I'm just like my 16 year old self who had all these grand ambitions. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, do, do, do you find that, I mean, have you t looked that much sort of psychoanalytic stuff about like, or is this that not relevant, like people's relationships with their parents and their role models and their, and their cultural desires, or is it just that doesn't, it's not relevant to your work? No, I haven't looked that in, into that in my work, but I mean, I have been, you know, sometimes wondering like about my voices in my head and the conversations that happen in my head, and there are voices of different ages there, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There is an older voice. There is an older me as well. That that you know, you kind of think, oh, I can't be bothered to do any yoga today. And there's there's the older me going, oh yeah, you got <laughs> what? A, and yeah. then here I am. I can't walk, and I can barely fasten my shoelaces. You should have done yoga that day. You know, and you should never stop. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. But okay. So um, so you're in Finland now. You're going back to uh, the. You're flying. You and you're struggling to to do this kind of international movement um, yeah. and we will hopefully see you in the UK from September 2020 for how long is it a permanent for post? Two years. It's oh. for two years and the project is funded by the Finnish Cultural uh, Foundation mm -hmm. yeah and they are you know uh, funding research abroad that also speaks to the Finnish scientific community so mm -hmm. I'm going to be yeah, in uh, the University of Brighton for two years. Well, that's great. And we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see you either there or in, in Cardiff. 
Yeah, um, when we can move around again, that would be great. I look forward to seeing you. But, but Anna Kavora, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and I hope that your travel plans uh, work out really well. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. <laughs>